But the other three of the Gospels only use the expression kingdom of God because they totally have a view to the power of God. Now, it must be understood that nobody walks in the power of God if they're not, first of all, in the righteousness of God. Uh, here again, you know, all dictionaries are books, but not all books are dictionaries. If it's going to qualify as a dictionary, it must, first of all, qualify as a book. And that goes as assumed. So the kingdom of heaven is dealing in terms of righteousness. The righteousness of God and the kingdom of heaven is illustrated in the wilderness. The wilderness in which Israel wandered, you'll remember, for 40 years. They were righteous before God. We were talking about this last uh, week. They went from Egypt across the Nile River, across the uh, uh, Red Sea, into the wilderness. But between the Nile River and the Red Sea, the blood had been shed by the, on the, in the uh, Passover lamb, you'll remember, and the cloud, the glory cloud, which of course was the presence of God, the glory of God in the cloud, had appeared. Truth? All right. So they were righteous before God at this point. And righteousness is always and only by the blood. Yes? Righteousness is always and only by the blood. There is no act which I commit which produces righteousness. Nothing apart from what God has already provided in redemption for sin by the blood that will ever produce righteousness. So the cloud appeared and God identified them as his people. He then took them through the Red Sea and we noted to you that this is what uh, Mark is referring to, Mark chapter 16, when he declares, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Paul makes reference to this experience in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. You can carry the whole context. They were all baptized in the cloud here and this notes to a, uh, speaks to a baptism in the Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And uh, the baptism in the Spirit then, now we are not talking about the baptism of the Spirit here, if you want to be technical in terms. We're talking about the baptism in the Spirit. By one Spirit we all baptize into one body. There is regeneration or new birth. So here we have a view toward God's bringing them into righteousness, and it is a shadow of our being brought into the body of Christ. They weren't. It is only a shadow of that. What happened in Exodus here is a figure of what happens in 1 Corinthians 12 here. Nobody back here was ever born again. Do we emphasize that adequately? Nobody under the old covenant was ever born again. So they crossed then the Red Sea and we have this then as an illustration of 1 Corinthians 10, 1, 4. So they're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and they all ate of that same spiritual meat, and they drank of that same spiritual rock, for that rock, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So the rock out of which the water flowed in the wilderness here, Exodus chapter 17, when Moses was commanded to smite the rock, and water came out of the rock, they drank of that water, it speaks to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You all still with us? All right. So they came in then to a wilderness experience and in a figure, not in fact, but in a figure, God was explaining to us our receiving of the Holy Spirit when we are born again here. But it is still a wilderness experience. And the problems which the children of Israel had in the wilderness were problems with themselves. It is a flesh experience. They are in righteousness, but they are walking after the flesh. Um, the... Uh, uh, experience of Joseph, for example, his whole life being rejected by his brethren, uh, being put in a pit, raised out of the pit, 
sold into uh, the hands of uh, foreigners, banished from his brethren, all of that is a figure of the experience of Christ. He was rejected by his brethren. He was put in a pit, burial. He was raised up again, resurrection. He was banished from his brethren. That is a shadow. The Greek word is tupos, type. It is a type of what is yet to come. The Ark of the Covenant is a type of the death of the Lord Jesus. The Passover lamb that was slain is a type of the death of the Lord Jesus, and we'll address this more fully in due course this morning. Uh, all of these incidents, Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, which happened to Israel, happened for examples to us. It says the same thing in uh, the 15th of Romans. Uh, they were examples to us, or they were types to us. So God takes something, sets it down as an illustration, and says, now, this is what my son is going to do. Then when his son accomplished it, we can look back and see how it foreshadowed it. Do you see? We also addressed this with regard, I think we did when we were talking about uh, the uh, covenants, the son is a figure of the Lord Jesus, Psalm 19. Uh, he's, uh, rejoice, the son rejoices as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. The son views the Lord Jesus, Malachi chapter uh, 3. Uh, in that day shall the son of righteousness arise, S-U-N, son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. The physical son up there then is a figure or a type or an example of the Lord Jesus. The moon is a figure of the church. It shines by reflected light. It has no light of its own. Apart from that light, it's dead. And when the sun, the light of the sun reaches the moon, then the moon then gives off light itself, but it's a borrowed light. When the world gets between, then it eclipses the light on the moon, and the moon can't give light. So if the world gets between the child of God and the Lord Jesus, it eclipses his light, and it can't give light. You follow that then? All, right, all of these things are examples. They are types. And everything that God ever did in the Old Testament were intended to be figures of what he's doing in the New. Uh, you can see this in the book of Joshua. The counterpart, New Testament counterpart of the book of Joshua is the book of Ephesians. It is the captain of the host of the Lord who has come to bring deliverance to his people, which is what we'll address later on. That all falls under this category, the kingdom of God. As long as you are in uh, Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus, you are over here in righteousness, but you are not in power. When you come into the book of Joshua, then you come into power. The captain of the host of the Lord has met his people, and he's leading them to victory. So during the whole course of this sojourn, they're just having trouble with themselves. They're walking after the flesh. Now, um, let me emphasize this again. Perhaps it goes without saying, but just to have it very clear in our minds, we use that word flesh as though we're talking about sin. And the word flesh does not mean sin. The word flesh makes reference to what? Weakness, precisely. Weakness. So Jesus said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Not the flesh is sinful, the flesh is weak. But because it is weak, it cannot produce. It cannot measure up to the character and the quality of God. So all have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. Why do they come short of the glory of God? Because the flesh is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It's weak, you see? So because of that, the flesh produces what are called by the Apostle Paul the works of the flesh. And the works of the flesh are sinful. Now, in the whole course of their sojourn in the wilderness, we have a figure then of our carnal walk as a believer. Now, go with me quickly to 1 Corinthians, pardon me, chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul, beginning with verse 14, begins to make the distinction in the three classifications of individuals. 2.14 and following. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned or judged or appropriated. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, 
yet he himself is judged of no man. He understands what's going on, but people don't tend to understand him. Verse 16, For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he might instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, chapter 3 and verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto what? Babes in Christ. So a babe in Christ is called carnal, or a carnal believer is a babe in Christ. You follow that. Carnal believers aren't lost. They're babes. It has been suggested from time to time that carnal people aren't born again. Well, beloved, interesting thing about uh, born-again people is that uh, they oftentimes manifest the fact that they're born again by their carnality. Uh, I feel a bunny path coming on. Am I allowed to take one today? Have I used up my allotted amount? Um, uh, let me, uh, perhaps I'll say it this way without getting too far afield with it. This is the message of Romans chapter 7, for example. Paul said, The things I would do I do not, the things I would not do, those things I find myself doing, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul is expressing his walk as a carnal believer. And he said, I want, uh, The things I wanted to do I didn't do, and the things I didn't want to do, those are the things I found myself doing. There is a warfare or a conflict then that goes, in, goes on in the life of a carnal, born-again believer, of a babe in Christ. You don't find that in a lost man. There's no warfare in him because there's no dual nature in him. There is no spirit of life in Christ Jesus in him to come into conflict with the law of sin and death. So that the Apostle Paul in Galatians then simply puts it, the flesh uh, lusts against the spirit. The word lust there in the Greek has the idea of has a strong desire toward, has a strong desire to suppress. You can translate it this way if you want to. The flesh is entrenched against the spirit and the spirit is entrenched against the flesh so that you cannot do the things that you would, but if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. See, the lust of the flesh work on weakness. And Jesus was not made after the law of a carnal commandment, a weak commandment, a fleshly commandment, same Greek word. But he's made after the power of an endless life. All right, that was parenthetical, okay? You don't remember that? That's all right. Okay, now, the natural man, then the spiritual man and a carnal man, the natural man is the unregenerate. And the unregenerate man is the man who has not experienced by new birth the resurrection of his spirit, so he has no consciousness of God. His spirit is dead and trespasses in sin. The carnal man is the man who has been born of the spirit. Regeneration has been his portion. Life has come in. He is, he is a container, therefore, for the Holy Spirit. Regenerate man. It's the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5, etc. And then the spiritual man is the regenerate man who is walking after the Spirit or who is being led by the Spirit. All right? You still with me? Now, the na I want to say a word about the natural man. The word translated natural here is the word suke or soul. Quite obviously, we get our word psychology from it and etc. The soulish man receives not, Paul said, the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. What he is saying simply is that the unregenerate man has no spirit consciousness of God and therefore everything he appropriates in the sphere of this world or in the sphere of, quote, religion, unquote, is altogether on a soulish level. He has to figure it out, in other words, with his natural intellect. And if you'll note that Paul's constant repetition, particularly in his epistle to the Corinthians, he says, when, by, when the world by wisdom knew not God, God chose by the foolishness of the thing preached to save them that believe. Eliphaz puts it interestingly, can a man by searching find out God? What's the answer to that? You're talking about another aspect, though, Ada. You're talking about a man hungering to know the Lord, but his searching does not discover him. God must be revealed to him. So we have uh, 
uh, Jesus' statement in Matthew 12, or I'm sorry, Matthew 11, for example, he's praying before the Father, and he said, Father, I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them unto babes. For man, no man knows the Father save the Son, and who to whomsoever the Son would reveal him. So the only way we know God is that God would reveal himself to us. And we can go through all of the mental gymnastics we want to to put God in a test tube or to discover him through some intellectual pursuit, and it never is to any avail. The world by wisdom knew not God, couldn't discover him in that manner. Uh, they found out things about God, but they never knew God. It's an interesting thing, too, as you search the Greek philosophers, how interesting that is. All right, so the natural man, then, can only move on a soulish level. Now, the carnal man is regenerate, the Holy Spirit is living in him, but he still is only moving by a soulish level. Do you see that now? Now, there's nothing wrong with the soul. It's just that the soul cannot function rightly without the Spirit, with a capital S. So as a believer is regenerate then, if I still walk after the natural mind, then I'm walking as a carnal believer. If I die, I go to heaven. But in the words of Job, again, I get to heaven by the skin of my teeth. And that's another subject which we're not intending to pursue right now. But the spiritual man is the, led who, uh, is the man who is led by that spirit. He's walking after the spirit who is in him. All right? You all with that then? Okay, so the issue then of the wilderness is the view toward the carnal believer. And again, the Greek word for carnal and flesh, same word. It's the word sarkikos. Uh, they're translated both these ways in the New Testament scripture. That's unfortunate, but we get used to that sort of thing. All right. Any questions about this now? So there they are in the wilderness, living in the kingdom of heaven, but they have not, and we're talking about the figure, understanding that nobody in the Old Testament was ever saved, and nobody in the Old Testament ever born again. Remembering that the word saved does not mean go to heaven. That's what we have applied it to mean, and certainly those who are saved will go to heaven, and so we have projected that. Uh, most of our, I've got to say this since I'm here, most of our Christian uh, conversation is centered around getting out of hell and going to heaven, isn't it? And you observe that, that uh, the Apostle Paul in his epistles doesn't even talk about hell? Uh, someone, as a matter of fact, has suggested that hell couldn't be real because Paul didn't talk about it. I don't know what they expect to do with the words of the Lord Jesus. I think that's quite interesting. The reason Paul didn't talk about hell was because he was not talking to a people who were going there. So why talk about it? But we still hold that in our thinking as though the ultimate work of God was to get us out of hell. Not true. The ultimate work of God is to conform us to the image of his Son. And once he has redeemed what is his, hell is no longer a thing to be considered. It's totally out of the picture. All right. Now, we're looking... Uh, I, I want to emphasize, though, that this is... Uh, you don't lose sight of this, that all we're talking about here in the Old Testament experience is intended to be an illustration of what we were going to have in a new. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Hebrews 11 is talking about all of the Old Testament saints who by faith were justified, but they were never saved. All of these people were justified. And because they were justified, they stood righteous in the presence of God. If you would then, they went to heaven. But they were not saved. Nobody under the Old Covenant was ever saved. And it is not until the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost that salvation is brought to his people. Salvation is deliverance. Salvation is the power of God. Salvation is the experience of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Now, following the figure then, all of these Old Testament believers were anticipating something that was yet to come. They died in faith, not having received the promise. Hebrews 11. And as they anticipated what was coming, 
They were traveling through the wilderness in rebellion and murmuring against God's man. For two years, God had determined, God had determined two years on his people to travel through the wilderness. By the way, just as an illustration to our experience, when the Lord first brings to us, pardon me, redemption, he does not bring me, as he said to Israel, he does not bring me immediately into the land of Canaan, that is, into the walk in the spirit, lest I see war and turn back. People come face to face with a battle with their enemy and it frightens them and they're not so sure they want to track this route at all. You remember he, uh, Deuteronomy 1 tells us that it was 11 days journey from Egypt to Canaan. That was a short route. But God did not take them by the way of the Philistines lest they see war and turn back. So he led them the way of Mount Seir and that was a two-year trip. And God intended to take two years to bring them into the land. But it turned into 38 more years because of their rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. Yes? All right. So it came to a total of 40 years, and 40 in the Word of God is the number of tests or trial. For the two years, they saw his acts. For 40 more years, they wandered in the wilderness so that God could deal with Israel. As one brother said, it took God only a few days to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And the whole issue of what he's doing with the child of God is taking all this time to get me out of me. I am crucified with Christ. That's a finished work. Galatians 2.20. Now God is manifesting to me what I am so that I'll be willing to release what I am to him so that he can replace me with himself. That's what he's been out to do in the first place. Our attitude generally is, well, God wants to improve me. Go, God's not interested in improving you. God has already crucified you. God wants to substitute himself for you, and nothing less than that will please him. All right, now we're going to move then from justification. Are we all following these terms now? It's very important that we do. Justification or righteousness, they are the same Greek word. The word dikaios means righteousness or justification or just or, or right before God, if you would. We're going to move then to the Jordan River. And in the crossing of the Jordan River, the people of God move out of a carnal experience merely knowing justification, into a spiritual experience knowing salvation. Again, that didn't really happen to Israel, but it is a figure of what was going to happen to us. Do you see that? Now, who is leading them up to this time, till the time they get to the Jordan? Who's been leading them? All right, Moses has. Moses, in the Word of God, is a figure of the law. A figure of the law. Who's the priest been ministering to them all this time? Aaron. I can spell Aaron, that's my son's name. Aaron is a figure of the ministry of Christ in death. The priestly ministry of Christ in death. There are two priestly ministries of the Lord Jesus. The Aaronic ministry, which is the priesthood of time and sacrifice. The Aaronic ministry was a priesthood of time and of sacrifice. Jesus came into time at the end of the age to offer himself as a lamb without spot to God. And that was a priesthood then associated with death. And Aaron died in the wilderness. And it notes then the finished work of the Lord Jesus, and it was imperative that Christ die before we ever come in to the kingdom of God or power. So Moses led them this whole time, and Aaron was the priest. Now, just holding that in your mind, let me finish what I'm saying here. The second priesthood is the Melchizedek priesthood. The Melchizedek priesthood of, of Christ is a priesthood of eternity and of, somebody tell me, intercession, of priesthood and intercession. When the Lord Jesus ascended to the Father, he entered into his Melchizedek ministry. 
sacrifice has already been made in the earth in time. That's a finished work. The blood is sprinkled in the presence of the Father, and now the Lord Jesus is interceding for us eternally, and there'll never be a time in the, in the new heaven and the new earth when you can get along without Jesus Christ. I trust we all understand that. He is our sole right to be there. The head can't exist. The body can't exist without the head. He is our head. So he has entered into a Melchizedek ministry for eternity, and it is a ministry of intercession. He stands in our behalf before the Father. Yes, ma'am. They say that they are going back to the truth from, through the lines of Melchizedek uh, priesthood and that they can trace who, uh, I don't know exactly what the word was, but who brought each one of their own little minister-like people yes. into it. You know, they trace each one back to the very... Yes, they're very genealogically orientated. They have a... Matter of fact, they've got them all over the country right now, but they have one main genealogical office in Salt Lake City, and any one of you in this room right now could go to one of those offices and they could trace your genealogy uh, back until... Every one of you. That's an interesting thing when you think about it. It's got some awesome ramifications. But let me, in answer to your question, um, the, uh, the problem that, that we face with that is that both of these priesthoods belong to the Lord Jesus. And for instance, the Melchizedek priesthood is figured only once in the Scripture, in the man Melchizedek. You remember that? And he's spoken to, of course, in Genesis 15 when he meets Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and in Psalm 110... Wherein in Psalm 110, God says, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, both of these are addressed in the epistle to the Hebrews. Both of them are applied to the Lord Jesus. They are never applied to man. And the Aaronic priesthood, uh, Paul tells us, ended at the uh, sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus. And the whole characteristic of the Aaronic priesthood in the whole course of his earthly reign, that is, before Christ came, was that it was a priesthood of infirmity compassed with death. And every time the, someone in the Aaronic priesthood died, they had to put a new priest in his stead until the real priest came along and made that sacrifice who has an, uh, whoever liveth. Uh, let me read the uh, passage. Go with me, please, to Hebrews. There's quite a bit we might read in this connection, but let's start, please, with verse, uh, or chapter 7. To put some man in this priesthood of Melchizedek right now is to say that there is a man who takes the intercessory position before God for mankind. Uh, start with verse 11, chapter 7. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there of another priest who should arrive after the order of Melchizedek and not called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. That's where we move from the law of Moses to the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We're not addressing that now, but that's what he's speaking to. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar, for it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is far more evident, for after the similitude of Melchizedek, you notice that word similitude? He is a figure, a type, an example. After the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now move over with me, please, to verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw near unto God. So if, for example, the Aaronic priesthood were being continued today, then we would be continuing in something which could make nothing perfect. You see? The Aaronic priesthood was a constant repetition and reminder of sins. Go with us, please, to chapter 9. Let's see, chapter 9 and verse uh, 6. Now when these things were thus prepared, the priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest only once a year, not without blood, 
which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. Did Jesus have to offer for himself? No, he didn't. The Holy Spirit thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. We noted to you under the covenant, you remember, that when the veil was rent in twain, that began the new covenant, and the way into the holiest was made plain, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in foods, drinks, various washings, carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of the Reformation, or the making of things, setting of things right. Literally, that word means the setting of things right. Now, verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of the good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once, not repeated every year, as Aaron does, but once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And on you go with it. You can uh, pick up from verse 23 of chapter 9 and read on. Uh, the emphasis is on the same thing. So the whole Aaronic ministry was just a pattern of good things to come. So that, I said, oh, let's say this. If I set up the Aaronic ministry again, I've gone back to the shadow. Yet here again, it's like buying a Cadillac and sitting down in the shadow and enjoying the shadow. It is really quite ridiculous. The whole issue then of the Aaronic ministry was to give a foreview of what God in Christ was going to finish. And since he has finished that work, that's why the epistle of the Hebrews was written. Because Christ has finished the work, and yet many of those Hebrew believers were still living in some of those ordinances. Paul said, if, you're, if the work is finished, why are you living in the shadow? Come live in the substance. Move from here to here, in other words. Uh, let me read from 23. Since I've come this far, I'm going to. It is therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, that is, all these things in earthly that were patterns of things up there, the blood of bulls and goats could purify them. But the heavenly things themselves had to be purified with better sacrifices than these, better than the blood of bulls and goats. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer... Her, uh, offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then he must have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the ages hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sin of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time apart from a sin offering literally, literally unto salvation. And on with chapter 10 you can go with the amplification of those figures. So the Aaronic priesthood to be established today is a repetition of the shadow. It's living in the shadow. And you will observe this, that every uh, system of religion which appeals to the Old Testament for its uh, uh, ministry, which is established on any kind of the former legalistic principles, is always a very carnal, uh, um, well, what other word can I use except legalistic system. And this is true of the Mormon church, for example. The Mormon church teaches that Christ made the down payment on salvation and we've got to keep up the payments. Now you see, that follows. That kind of a philosophy follows with uh, going back to the Old Testament to establish their system. Did Christ just make a down payment? I had one of them tell me one time, it's like buying a house. He said, he made the down payment, but now we've got to keep up the payments. Well, the problem with that is I'm already broke. I don't have the first payment, much less the last. How utterly ludicrous that is when you consider it. Christ paid the whole show. And he has invited me now 
to share in the inheritance which he has purchased before the Father with his own blood. Uh, we're not here to deal with cults, but uh, Mormonism is a cult. There's no doubt about that. But you can follow this with any kind of a, uh, systems which appeal to the law of Moses in any part, the moral law or the ceremonial law. Uh, they're always very legalistic in their approach, and they're forever teaching that the believer has to walk right or he won't make it to heaven. That is the very core of that kind of thing. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes, and that's right. In, with regard to the Melchizedek priesthood, yes, they have uh, uh, reduced that priesthood to mankind here who is compassed, still compassed with infirmities and reduces altogether the value of the in eternal intercessory work of the Lord Jesus in the presence of the Father. Uh, the um, whole issue of Melchizedek in the Scripture, if you read, we read on with Hebrews, we would note that, that he is a figure of the, of the Lord Jesus in the sense that he was without beginning of days and without end of life. The genealogy of Melchizedek is never mentioned in the Scripture. And it speaks to the eternality of the Lord Jesus. He was pre-existent before his birth in Bethlehem, and he shall eternally exist before the Father in our behalf. All right. So you see the two priesthoods of the Lord Jesus then. This one then was accomplished by his sacrifice, upon which basis then he entered into his Melchizedek priesthood. And by the way, the word Melchizedek is a contraction of two Hebrew words, Malek, which is king, and Sidkenu, righteousness. So he is king of righteousness. What does that say, anyhow? There we are. Is that closer? That's what I get for talking and writing, you see. He is king of righteousness. And you recall that the historical Melchizedek who met Abraham was king of a town called Salem. What was Salem? All right, yeah, but it was Jerusalem, that's right. And Jerusalem means foundation of peace. It's been called city of peace properly. It's foundation of peace. Salem meant peace. It was simply the ancient name for the city of Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, uh, uh, the, uh, the original, Mel I shouldn't say the original, Jesus was the original, uh, the natural, there you are, Melchizedek, was a, Mel was a man who reigned over a city called Salem, so he was king of peace, and he is by his name's interpretation king of righteousness both of which Jesus accomplished, you see. Jesus is king of peace. He has ministered peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians chapter 1, and he is king of righteousness. He has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So whatever we have need of, Christ has become before the Father. We stand perfected in the Son, and that releases us from any obligation to perform right in order to go to heaven. You all catch that now. That is vitally important. We have been released from any obligation to perform right to go to heaven. A believer walks in righteousness not in order to go to heaven, but because God has regenerated him. He is doing because of what has been done with him, for him, not in order to get God to do something for him. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we quote so frequently, we need to add verse 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now what's the next verse say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God has produced something in a believer then that causes him to follow after good works. He is not following after good works in order to get God to produce something in him. Y'all get all that? So a man, comes, uh, a man comes to righteousness because God has imparted righteousness to him by the Lord Jesus and by the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Nobody will ever work his way to heaven. As a matter of fact, may I say it again with a certain amount of trepidation? Good people go to hell. 
bad people go to heaven. And you watch the message of the scripture and you'll find that consistently to be the case. There is a bad man standing in the temple praying and a good man standing in the temple praying. Yes, you remember them, don't you? Huh? Yes, you do remember them. And the bad man lifted up, I'm sorry, kept his head bowed and he would not dare uh, so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the good man standing with him in the temple said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not as other men just like this guy over here. You remember them? The publican and the Pharisee. And God said to the publican, this man went down justified. Hmm? But the Pharisee went down in his own righteousness. Good man headed for hell. My, you're a sober looking bunch. <laughs> Jesus said, I haven't come to call a righteous to repentance. Didn't he? Yes, he did. <laughs> I haven't come to call a righteous. Righteous people don't want to go to heaven. They don't think they need it. All right, so now we, we want, we're, we've seen the believer under justification here and countless numbers of believers when they come to the Lord Jesus uh, live from that point on in the justification that's been brought to them and never really entering experientially into the salvation of God which God has prepared. Salvation then is deliverance. It is wholeness. It is completeness. The Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament word salvation is the word shalom or peace. And it means wholeness or completeness. So God has wrought for us salvation. The, the Greek word translated salvation, soterion, is used of physical healings in the New Testament. It's used of, uh, of uh, deliverance in temporal senses. And it's used of the believer in his position before the Father in Christ Jesus. He is saved in the fullest sense of the word. Now, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, as we've noted to you before, so often quoted to uh, believer, I'm sorry, to unbelievers to lead them to Christ, the fact of the matter is that the verses were written to believers who knew justification, but they didn't know salvation. If I might just refresh your memory once more here, if Paul starts out his epistle to the Romans chapter 1 and verse 8 with saying, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, why in the world does he in the next verses then say, I want to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome? If they have such faith that the whole world knows about it, why does he want to waste his time preaching the gospel to them? Because they didn't understand the gospel. They needed to hear the gospel. They were living in justification, but they had never come into salvation. They knew what it was to be made righteous by the blood of Christ, but they didn't know what it was to be saved by the life of Christ. Romans 5.10. All right? You all are going to get that verse, aren't you? Uh, you ought to have it now, much time as I've repeated it. All right, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. If thou shalt confess in thy mouth Jesus to be Lord, verse 9, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be, what? Saved. All right. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. Remember, righteousness, justification, the same Greek word. With the heart, through the blood, he believes to justification or righteousness. But with the mouth, confession is made by the life of Christ unto salvation. So you can believe with your heart, never say a word about it, and go to heaven. Somebody says there's no such thing as a secret disciple. That isn't true. There are a lot of them. Arab countries are full of them. Secret disciples never open their mouth about it. Now, that's what God desires. I'm not justifying that. I'm only pointing out that it's true. But when he speaks that in confession, it brings salvation. Now, we were talking about water baptism last week. You see then the role that water baptism plays in the believer's confession. He is declaring the fact that he has died with Christ and he's raised again in his life, the salvation of God. This, since I mentioned Arab countries, I'll emphasize this a little more. I serve on a board of mission 
board for uh, ministry to Arabs. And one of the most difficult thing in any Arab country to do is to get the Arab who has believed to the saving of the soul to get baptized. Because the moment he does, he is jeopardizing his relationship with his family. If not his family, he's certainly jeopardizing his own life. In Saudi Arabia, in the Yemen Arab Republic, uh, in uh, Afghanistan, another one up there too. I can't draw back. Come on. Iraq. Uh, a Muslim who turns to Christianity has signed this death warrant. They'll just kill him. Very unceremoniously, they'll kill him. And, uh, you know, that's a staggering thing to us. We don't live in that kind of economy. What is the, the uh, uh, well-worn expression, uh, well, half the world don't know how the other half lives? Well, it's well-worn expression because it's true. And uh, we, we, do, we fail to recognize how severely some believers in certain areas of the word pay for confessing Jesus Christ publicly. And an Arab who does that has uh, consigned himself to death. That is not quite so true in the Re Yemen Arab Republic, but because of the political situation that exists there. But pressure is on them from the north, from Saudi Arabia, to change that attitude. So that uh, this thing of confessing unto salvation is vitally important. They have believed the justification. They have not confessed the salvation. They are secret disciples, and there are multitudes of them. We know of some who have confessed, and they've just simply disappeared. That's all. Nobody's ever seen them again. Okay, I want to illustrate this now further. I think we're going to do all right on our time. I want you to see this in terms of uh, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Go with me, please, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. And we will focus particularly on verse 44. Verse 44. I'm not through with crossing Jordan yet, so don't get too far afield from that in your thinking. Permit me just for time's sake and for my voice's sake to give you some verses to read, may I? Who will have ready for us, please? John chapter 1 and verse 29. Someone will read that for us? Anyone? Yes, all right, fine. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Uh, who, uh, uh, Mary, you read that for us, please. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 25. Who will read that for us? All right, okay, fine. Mark 15, 25. All right, now, Luke 23, 44. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in the midst. Now, the view, excuse me, the view is toward the finished work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, isn't it? Is that what we're reading in the context, the crucifixion? All right, now, uh, read Mark 15 for us, if you would, while you, uh, before we get too much farther here. 25. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. All right, simple enough. So the Lord Jesus was crucified the third hour. Is that correct? That's when they hung him. And from the third hour to the sixth hour, what was the atmospheric condition? No, no, no. Hmm? It was light. Oh, yes, there's the whole issue, you see. From the third hour to the, to the sixth hour, there is light. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there is darkness. Anyone care to tell me why? How come it was not until... One half that period was consumed, that darkness fell on the earth. Oh, he became sin. 
All right, at this point, the Lord Jesus cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He didn't cry that before, did he? But not until the darkness fell and the separation came. All right, the question then is, why did the separation come? This is what we come to explain. In Exodus chapter 12, we have, you remember, the law of the Passover. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is careful to point out to us that Christ, our Passover, is crucified. Of God that taketh away the sin of the world, the blood was shed from that lamb, and righteousness was wrought before God. It is by the blood of Christ that perfect righteousness is wrought in the presence of God, and we enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and, uh, new and living way, with boldness, the Apostle Paul is careful to tell us. All right, so here he is the lamb, the light is shining, the sun is still out, if you would, the light is shining, God is beholding that sacrifice. And he approves it because he finds no fault in that lamb and therefore the blood is valuable and is efficacious to take away our sin. We've all followed that now. Yes? Okay, now, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there is a separation wrought in the Godhead, which is that um, inexplicable experience that takes place whereby God has separated himself from himself, from his son, in order that he, by forsaking his son, might let his son go into death, and we'll speak to that momentarily, let his son go into death, and by his son going into death, he can bring us out into life. We illustrated this to this class, did we not, in Adam and his relationship with Eve, that the only way Adam could keep the woman that he loved Eve was die with her. And by dying with her, he too was forsaken of the father, wasn't he? But it redeemed his wife, didn't it? And that he did because he loved that wife supremely. He didn't want another one, he wanted that one. The Lord Jesus loved the church, Paul tells us, and gave himself up for it. All right then, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, he is no longer the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now he is the serpent on the pole. Numbers chapter 21. You remember the, uh, the uh, Numbers chapter 21 verses 5 through 9 deal with the context. When the children of Israel had already come out of the land of, of Egypt and were sojourning in the wilderness, and the rebellious attitude of Israel was manifest. They rebelled against Moses and against uh, God's authority in Moses. Then God sent fiery serpents among them, and they cried out to Moses <clears throat> concerning those fiery serpents. And God said, Moses, I want you to take a serpent of brass. And brass is in the Scripture the medal of judgment. Brass is in the Scripture the medal of judgment. Maybe I ought to run through those uh, for you. Uh, <clears throat> And he said, Moses, take a servant of brass and put it on a pole, and everyone who looks thereon will be healed, or delivered, in other words, from the results of their rebellion. Now, rebellion is particularly the sin of Satan, isn't it? Yes? Satan in his five eye wills, Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High, and the Most High God is the possessor of heaven and earth. So he says, I'm going to displace the Son as the possessor of heaven and earth. Rebellion. So God put up that uh, serpent as a figure of Satan. And is not the serpent in the scripture the figure of Satan? From Genesis 3 and following, Paul says, for example, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I fear as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety that you should be corrupted from the simplicity which is in Christ. So the serpent speaks to Satan. Here then it is righteousness. But here, astounding. Satan? Are you still out there now? There is bloodshed here. There is no blood here. In the serpent. Serpent shed any blood? Wouldn't done any good if it had. So what is God telling us? You remember when Jesus was in the garden 
He said, uh, he came, uh, left his disciples here and took the three and went off and then left them sitting and went off a little farther and he said, watch with me. And he went off and prayed and he said, Father, if it be possible, let this pass from me. The cup was not here. The cup was here. Was it any surprise to the Lord Jesus that he was going to die? Was it any surprise the manner in which he was going to die? He had been repeatedly saying that to his disciples in the whole course of his three-year ministry that the Son of Man must be delivered, betrayed, be delivered into the hands of sinful men. In another case, he says, into the hands of the Gentiles, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. That was no bulletin to the Son. So why then, when he came into the garden, did he pray that prayer? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. A cup in the Scripture is fellowship. A cup is communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul said, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the what? communion of the blood of Christ. If you want an Anglicized form of the word communion, it is common union. That's what the word means. Common union. So Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. What was the cup that he was about to drink? Fellowship with the devil. The only way he could ever loose us from the authority of the devil is it that he would himself come under that authority. Astounding. And when he saw that in that cup, that is what he shrank from. But he said, thanks be unto God, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And he drank the cup thoroughly in fellowship with the devil. And it was impossible that death should hold him. Yes? That's what Peter tells us. Yes? And so as he drank this cup, there was darkness over the face of the earth and the whole physical creation as the Son of Man came into communion with Satan as the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, came into communion with Satan. It was necessary that the whole physical creation should shut its eyes to what was happening here as the Father turned his back and the physical creation over which Christ bore legitimate rule shut his eyes to the fact that communion was now held in the, uh, uh, in the Godhead with Satan. Then God, by that act, has wrought us, has delivered us, loosed the bands you see that were upon us by Satan, and he's brought us in resurrection life in the power and the victory of the Lord Jesus over Satan. It was not sufficient that God should loose us from sin. He must loose us also from the cause of sin. It was not sufficient that he should loose me from the guilt of sin. He must also loose me from the power of sin. That's what this was all about. And when Jesus then became the serpent on the pole, did I give anybody John chapter 3? Let me read it. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. As Moses put a, a brass serpent on a pole in the wilderness, which viewed Christ as taking a place with Satan in judgment, so also the Lord Jesus must come into a place of judgment with Satan in order that he by, by that act deliver us. And you understand, beloved, that no one is ever delivered except the deliverer comes into the place and the position of the one being delivered. We must understand that. Yes, ma'am. That's why the water came out instead of blood when they pierced it. Water and blood. I thought it was just water. No, there came forth water and blood, or blood and water in right order. Yeah. Okay, then also, because he drank of that cup, that's why people can be delivered out of the cult, right? Yes, that's right. Delivered from anything. Amen. And, and here we have justification then. And here we have salvation. You make that distinction. Here under light, God saw the blood and he was satisfied. Here under darkness, Jesus went into fellowship with the devil and by that delivered us. 
He defeated Satan face to face with Satan uh, in Satan's kingdom. How else can you say that? This, I think, a little lambology, if you would. This, I think, is what is figured in Leviticus chapter 1 with regard to the offering of the meal offering. And you notice that the meal offering could pre be prepared in one of three ways. It could be baked, or it could be fried in a pan, yeah, fried in a pan, fried on a griddle, or baked in an oven. Uh, the, the griddle, you see the whole thing. You know, it's very open. There, that speaks to his physical sufferings. What's fried on the, on the uh, uh, pan, you only see a part of it. That speaks to his soulish sufferings. But what's baked in the oven, you don't see any of it. You know it's being baked. You see the finished product, but you don't view the process. And that's what we had here. We know it's being baked. We've seen the finished product, but we didn't view any of it. Anyone have any questions <clears throat> concerning that? Yes, that's right. That's right. He had no right to face Satan except that he was without sin. The uh, uh, authority which belonged to the Lord Jesus belonged to him because he was the last Adam. The first man Adam was a failure. The last Adam was a perfect success. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, we have a view of Jesus before the Father as the last Adam, not as the second man. He had to go to the cross to do that. Here he is becoming the second man, one who has the right to reproduce after his own kind. But he was the last Adam on the Mount of Transfiguration, and God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Everything was fine with him. Because he knew no sin. I didn't write that verse up here. I need to because it's important to this whole business. 2 Corinthians 5.21 he who knew no sin became sin. Notice that? Became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Oh, yes. Sato was going to say that, didn't I? Well, all right, we need to take a break, but uh, uh, let me very quickly put it. I'm not really through with the, with the issue of crossing Jordan anyhow. But the difference between, uh, between the two is here you are, I'm running out of room to write, here you are a child, this is colored chalk, huh? Here you are a child and here you are a son. And the issue between the two is going from childhood, which is walking by legalistic principles, and coming into sonship, which is walking by uh, the law of the Spirit. And the law of the Spirit acknowledges, first of all, that there is a new energy in me that is going to perform the righteousness of God. It is not just imputed righteousness, it's imparted righteousness. So there is a new life in me now that's going to do here what I couldn't do here. So over here, I've been walking as a child and under a carnal experience by regulations wherever I could because I couldn't find a better way to go about it. And so I say, well, what should I do in this case? And God says, here's the law, do it that way. And so I walked by the law. If I want to move then into sonship, which I have been made by the, by the advent of his spirit, we haven't discussed that yet, we will in due course. When the Holy Spirit falls on the believer then the, the, he receives what Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 4 as the adoption of sons. And God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So we have a new energy here. The law was a carnal commandment. It was weak through the flesh. Flesh couldn't perform. Law could say what to do, but it couldn't give you any energy to do it. Now God has sent his Spirit, which has made me a son. The Spirit of God is in my heart now. And Paul says, if we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. All right, your question then is, how do you walk in the Spirit? Yes? Right? Okay. By walking. Walking in the Spirit doesn't mean that you perform correctly. 
Walking in the Spirit means to, number one, acknowledge the fact that the Spirit of God is in you to perform, I'm sorry, to fulfill before God every just requirement of the law. That's 8, 2 and following of Romans. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, weakness, but after the Spirit, power. Are you following now? All right, we think then to walk after the Spirit is to perform rightly. And you know, we have really made a law out of the Spirit, just like we made a law out of the commandment. Are you following what I'm saying by that? We have taken the whole principle of walking in the Spirit and made it something I had to do, just like we were under the law. So how is that any different? Why, it's no different at all, and that's why we have all these frustrated believers trying to walk in the Spirit. That's a contradiction in terms. You can't try to walk in the Spirit any more than a peach tree can try to produce peaches. It is its nature to produce peaches. So it simply comes to this. I'm going to open a can of worms now. I don't have time to pursue it all, but I'll do it anyhow. I had somebody write me a letter the other day from North Texas asking me to give some explanation of this verse, Philippians 2.13. And we had some tapes on it, and so we sent them the tapes, and I want to write them a letter too concerning it. But that, that uh, you know, is so difficult for us. To, we are practical infidels. We really are. It's so difficult for us to believe the Scripture. And Philippians 2.13, maybe I quote 12 while I'm at it. Uh, work out your own salvation. The word work out means to bring to maturity. Bring to maturity your own salvation with fear and trembling for. What's verse 13 say now? For it is God that's working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, how many of you here believe that? No, oh, one or two of you. Mm -hmm. It is God that's working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, you notice what that's doing? That's setting me aside. That's setting me aside. I'm no longer involved in that. Just for an example, before I proceed farther with it, I'm eating up your break time now. This, this is your nickel. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that God is going to do what he wants to do whether I get it done or not. If I may just bring up my favorite illustration again, Moses was told the second time to speak to the rock. He didn't speak to the rock. He smote the rock. But water came out anyhow. Hmm? So you let God tell you to do something and then you don't do it right or you don't do it at all and watch and see if water doesn't come out anyhow. It will. Ah, but wait a minute. That's not what we're considering. That's not what we're considering. So I begin to see that God is doing something in me and he's brought me to a new way of walking. And in view of the fact that God did it anyhow, it must not have been dependent on me. Hallelujah. There's a bulletin for you. That God is not struggling somehow to get me to do right so his work will be a success. God's work's going to be a success whether I do it right or not. And I can then begin to release myself to the fact that it's God that's working in me. And even when I do it wrong, he still does it right. 2 Corinthians 13, you can do nothing against the truth. And I begin to release myself to that. And I can walk in peace in that. And I relax in that. And there is rest in that. And this is the land of rest. There was no rest in the wilderness. There was only rest in Canaan. God said, Deuteronomy, you have not come into the rest yet, which I have prepared for you. And they came into that rest in Canaan as a figure of the rest which we have in Christ now. All right, I've said all that to do. Say this then. When I come to the realization that God is doing it anyhow, what then is left with me? Jesus said, um, uh, You shall... Uh, I got one to quote the whole verse, and I'm not picking it up. Um, if ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask whatever I tell you, and it shall be done unto you. Huh? Oh, 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 oh. That wasn't correct, was it, huh? Ye shall ask what ye... Oh, will. 
What's your will? If I may say so, for the first number of years of my Christian walk, I was absolutely certain that if I wanted to do it, it had to be evil. Just because I wanted to do it. If it was something I was enjoying, it couldn't be God. I had the strange, mistaken notion that the only thing that was spiritual was what I couldn't enjoy. And I've come to the realization that it's God that's working in me to will. 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 You should ask what you will, and it shall be done. Guess what, saints? The way you walk in the Spirit is do what you want to. You all out there? <laughs> yeah. Do what you want. Does that mean you can watch Battlestar Galactica? That's exactly right. <laughs> and you can watch it with great joy. You know, the remarkable thing about this is that we're all so afraid of ourselves that we are not willing to trust the Lord in us. And God establishes our wants. And whether they're inconsistent with his nature, putting a law on you won't change that. If I may, will you forgive me, sister? Uh, if God didn't want me to watch Battlestar Galactica, and I didn't watch it, but I wanted to watch it, I might as well have watched it. Hmm? That is exactly what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. He said, you're priding yourself in the fact that you never committed adultery, but he said you might as well have because you wanted to. Yes, it's the same thing. So what God is saying to us, beloved, is that law won't change that. It can't change me on the inside any more than it changes me on the outside. So a believer now, by the Spirit of God in him, is released to do what he wants because God is progressively changing his desires. And as he progressively changes those desires, I can release myself to the Spirit of God that's in me to produce in me what is uh, acceptable in his sight. You watch this with the Apostle Paul. Uh, you all, this is not a conspiracy, is it? To keep you from getting the quiz? You're going to get it anyway. You, you watch that the Apostle Paul, I, I don't have time to pursue this whole thing, but the Apostle Paul did precisely this. That wherever the Apostle Paul went, he went because he wanted to go. Yes, he went because he wanted to go. He didn't stop and have a three-day prayer meeting before he went. He just went. We usually have our three-day prayer meetings to lend spirituality to doing what we knew we were going to do in the first place, but we just wanted to look spiritual so that we had this long three-day prayer meeting so that the Apostle Paul went from Troas to Mysia or to whatever town he wanted to go to because he wanted to. And then when he was about to go into Asia, the Holy Spirit came on the scene and said, Paul, don't go to Asia. You see the beauty of that? Paul was doing what he wanted, and it was okay for him to do what he wanted until God was ready to tell him different. And the Lord came and said, now, Paul, don't go to Asia. Well, we might have said, well, where do you want me to go? Paul, you allow the hypothetical conversation here. Where do you want me to go? I don't care where you go, just don't go to Asia. Go anywhere you want to, just don't go to Asia. Philippians chapter 3, then, verse 15. As many of you be perfect, be mature, be thus-minded. And uh, that is, if you quit being a child and you start to be a son, be thus-minded. That is, press toward the market prize of high calling God in Christ Jesus. He's talking about a people that have a hunger after God. This applies to people that have a hunger after God. They're the ones that are sons. Children don't have a hunger after God. they got to play their toys. All right? So that here Paul says then, As many of you as be perfect, be thus-minded. And if in any way you be otherwise-minded, God will reveal even this to you. Isn't that wonderful? So just go on and do what you want. And if God's got to tell you something different, he'll tell you. You're all right till God tells you different. That's walking in spirit, brother. And you see, this, is, this takes the regulations. This takes all the regulations off your Christian walk. And I say this in all haste, beloved. I'm not the least bit worried about some believer taking that to say, well, if that's the case, then I'm just going to go live in sin. I'm not the least bit worried about that. Not the least. Uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God that bringeth salvation. 
hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The man who wants to just go promiscuous and live in sin has never tasted the grace of God. It's like a couple of us were talking this morning. There is no problem with a lot of religious people that being born again wouldn't cure. 